This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. That is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far ought to have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby and Andy McCullough on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode four of The Roundtable, presented by Tops in their new Series 1 Baseball NFT Collection. I am Grant Brisby. I am here with Andy McCullough, and every week we bring on a guest. Today's guest is going to be Tigers beat writer for The Athletic, Cody Stabenhagen. How are you doing, Cody? Doing all right. It's uh, It's been a busy weekend in Tigers land, but thanks for having me on. Yeah, not a problem. We do have Tigers, Tigers to talk. Andy, how are you doing? You pumped about Tigers talk? I have a lot of thoughts on the Tigers, including ones that will be shared later. <laughs> Ooh, mysterious. We like mystery. <laughs> All right. So the big talk in Tigers land, we will get to the point where the Tigers are eminently watchable, um, which is something that I, I really I'm always for a good watchable Tigers team. And I think that was the buzz going into this year for them. But uh, the talk in Tigers land is Miguel Cabrera in 3000 hits. You are uh, you are the boots on the ground. You're the man on the scene. What was like what was it like? Is it uh, how was it covering it? Is it cool as heck? How are the fans reacting? to it give us mickey content it probably all sounds a little cliched but seeing history up close in person is really cool he hit 500 last year um, that happened on the road in toronto and i was not able to be there and you know from home it was like okay wish i would have been there but you know saw it on tv interviews were via zoom back then was still able to write a nice story seeing 3000 up close and personal was different two days before his 3000th hit miguel who sometimes can be evasive or or a little moody with the media, held court at his locker for 20 minutes. Probably the best interview I've seen from him in his the three or four years I have covered him. And if you took a step back and thought about it, it was like, here's a guy, here's a great, who's going to be in Cooperstown one day, just sitting here talking about everything from Tiger's great Al Kaline to his sons to Venezuela to kind of what this chase is like for him, to the Tigers' future and Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green, it was really authentic. And um, I also had the pleasure, there's a, a 94-year-old four-year-old sports writer in Detroit named Jerry Green. And Jerry Green covered Al Kaline's 3,000th hit. And he made sure to be in the press box because he wanted to see Cabrera's 3,000th hit. Someone brought Jerry a copy of the paper from the 70s and uh, the story he wrote on Kaline's 3,000th hit. And you kind of see the pride in, in Jerry Green's eyes, what, what, 50, almost 50 years later, looking back on this historic moment and the story he wrote on K-Line was very good. And so I tried to, I kind of tried to keep all that in perspective during Miguel's chase. The moment 3000 itself, opposite field hit, which is textbook Cabrera, you know, hugs Rockies players, Jose Iglesias, a former teammate, CJ Crone, a former teammate. And the Tigers didn't really have a script for how they were going to react. You know, it was very organic. Everyone just came out of the dugout. 
they did plan to pause the game, and Miguel's family came down on the field. But I think 3,000 is a testament to longevity, and even though Miguel has not aged well, there are a lot of really good hitters in the history of the game who do not have 3,000 hits. You have to be good, you have to be consistent for a long time. Uh, so I think it was a moment to kind of step back and appreciate the totality of Miguel Cabrera's career rather than just um, maybe the snippet you look at modern day Miguel and he's not quite the hitter he once was. Now, as someone who was around for the the early nerd wars of Mike Trout's career and the war and the triple crown and the MVP, do, do you get an MVP? Like there was this sort of like Miguel Cabrera represented like an old school, like he's like a traditional slugger, triple crown stats. And what 3000 hits to me, when I think of hits, like I get that war is like encompassing defense and it's trying to present a more complete picture of a player. And that's a stat that has its place, but hits to me are a happy fun time stat. So when I hear that Miguel Cabrera has 3000 hits, that is 3000 times. He's made a happy fun time moment for tigers fans. Then like, I love the stat of, of hits. I love the stat of average. Is it going to tell you how good a player is? Not always like, you know, it has its limitations, but as a happy fun time stat, like Miguel Cabrera has done the thing he's gone up to the plate to do 3000 times. No one's close. No one's going to do it for decades now that he's done it. Like, I think that that's really cool. I love your perspective on a stat that, that you clearly do not think is very uh uh useful i guess uh no i know <laughs> dude you know it's so crazy like you i'll be honest i don't think i'd thought about miguel cabrera in like three years right like i'm not gonna pretend like i had right he hasn't been particularly good the tigers haven't been particularly good and like when i think about miguel cabrera it's like i'm transported back into another time i think like man i'm gonna go on fan and see how well cliff lee's pitching you know like it is just He's just so and because of his place in those war wars with with Trout, you know, literally a decade ago. He just is so like emblematic of the early 2010s baseball coverage. Like he was such a vital figure as both like uh, one an incredible player and also sort of like a a straw man that we all had to sort of like pretend that Miguel Cabrera wasn't that good because we wanted to think that Mike Trout was so much better, which like you know, he was, but you'd have to say stuff like, yeah, Miguel Cabrera's a butcher at third base and like stuff like that, you know, when it's like, actually you look back at his numbers, you're like, man, that guy was awesome. Wow. I remember one time when I was covering the Mets, this was like in, it must've been in, um, must've been in like the summer of 2012. And it was like when, you know, the, everyone was talking about Trout versus Cabrera, right? Cause it looked like Cabrera was going to win. Uh, the triple crown and but trout was like having this incredible you know eight or nine win season and uh, i was talking to jason bay and uh in the mets clubhouse and we were talking about the mvp race and i was like i mean it's like obvious who the mvp is and he goes yeah dude it's like not even a question and i'm like right trout and he goes no cabrera you idiot and i was just like oh okay this is all right very interesting and so he's just it's yeah the the, the nostalgia is like lesson it, it just it just transported me back into that earlier time which i think was was really nice it's far from the most controversial mvp too especially if you look back 10 years later when 10 years before that when no one was talking about war if you go look at the year miguel tejada won or the year jeff kent won you know those would never happen today i don't think I don't know. I, I'm glad I wasn't covering the sport yet then because I don't know what I would have done. I definitely value war, but hits are valuable too, and it's not like Miguel was a one or two win player. There are guys 
current guys on the Tigers that the national audience probably does not know exist, Harold Castro and Victor Reyes, who were like 290 to 310 hitters, but they hit singles and they never walk and they are very replaceable players. So batting average can matter as long as you do some other stuff too. Yeah. The thing was, is Cabrera was like a seven win player. It's just that Trout was like yeah. a 10 win player. <laughs> exactly. you know, right. That was the, that was the only thing. And, and, and you, and you couldn't convey, yeah, you just, it, it was like, you had to say like, this guy can't run the bases. I know he's hitting 350 and he's hitting 40 homers and like, you know, he's the best hitter you've ever seen, but he stinks. <laughs> Trust me, this guy sucks, okay? Like you don't believe me. That other guy who plays on the West Coast who I don't even watch because I live in New York and like I don't pay attention to him, but I I checked baseball reference and he's got all this black ink. He must be the best player. It's just I don't know. It was like a simpler dumber time almost. It was a simpler dumber time. I think with with Cabrera the one thing I wanted to ask is like his career is sometimes you get these careers where a player's he's performing at a certain level and then he starts tailing off and starts tailing off, tailing off. Miguel Cabrera is like, boom, he's Miguel Cabrera. He's hitting 38 home runs, 316, just like he's done for the 10 years before that. And then he goes home after the 2016 season, something happens. And then he comes back and he's just like a guy. He's just like a very, very ordinary hitter, league average. I think like his OPS plus is exactly 99 or 100 after 2017. And so you have these five, six years where Tigers fans are getting used to a very typical hitter. Like he's got the mythology behind him, but he's just, he's just a guy like he's not someone you necessarily look forward to as at bats. How does that affect like Tigers fans perceptions? Are they still just goofy for him? Like they remember the really, really good times, the decade that he was the best hitter on the planet, or is there, does it temper it a little bit? Like how do Tigers fans react to Miguel Cabrera? Like the player, the current player and the legend. I think 500 and 3000 have been very important for almost the resurrection of Miguel Cabrera's legacy and what he means to Tigers fans, because there were, there was, he was bad in 2017. He was hurt almost all of 2018. He was very bad in 2019, you know, never really got going in the short in 2020 season. I think there came a point where people were tired of Miggy, you know, the guy's making $30 million a year. The team is terrible. They're not spending money on anyone else. They're paying Miguel Cabrera and Jordan Zimmerman $55 million, the rest of the team combined, you know, and Miguel was a probably below league average designated hitter who didn't have power um, to speak of. I think there was definitely a point where, number one, Miguel, I think, was frustrated. It didn't look like he was having as much fun. A guy who was known for, you know, his joyous, gregarious personality on the field didn't show that quite as much. The team was bad. I think he came to be... I don't know, like almost his greatness kind of faded. There were a sect of the fan base that almost resented him and his paycheck a little bit. And then as I alluded to earlier, when he reaches these milestones, I think it caused everyone to take a step back and be like, oh, wow, we've got to watch one of seven guys who has 503,000. We've got to watch one of the greatest pure hitters of all time, one of the best right-handed hitters of all time throughout his prime years and and now into the twilight of his career, he's going to retire as a Tiger. I think it's brought some perspective for Miguel, for the fan base, for the organization that's almost renewed the sense of like, oh yeah, uh, Miguel's a very popular player. Like we, we love Miguel here. I think that's the sense I get. Now with 
Cabrera, I love that you wrote about the 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 whole process, how the Tigers got him in the first place, because I'm fascinated with that. That whole trade, the way it went down, the, the fact that he was available at all, how rare that is. You went back and you looked at all the different packages and all the rumors. I love looking through that because there is a very distinct and important lesson is that when you have a chance to get like a 24-year-old future Hall of Famer, like absolute baseball freak, you do it. You don't worry about, oh, are we going to lose Jacoby Ellsbury or, oh, like, I don't know if we can give up Angel Villalona. Like, you know, just shut up. There's like one player that would have really stung, and that's Clayton Kershaw. And all those rumors, if the Dodgers gave up Clayton Kershaw, there might have been regrets. But when I looked back at like 18, 19 different rumors, none of them were worth three years of Miguel Cabrera, two years. And it's just like amazing that the Tigers had him in the first place. Yeah, you could argue that the package the Marlins actually accepted was the worst package of all the ones that were that were rumored and floated. But at the time, they thought it was the best. Cameron Maben and Andrew Miller were top 10 prospects. Imagine getting two of the top 10 prospects in today's game. Imagine getting, I don't know, uh, Julio Rodriguez and, and Emerson Hancock, someone even higher ranked. Well, than we'll Emerson get to Hancock, that in our next know. segment. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, the Marlins were not excited about the deal they didn't want to trade him there's all this financial mess but they were like okay if we have to trade him at least we're getting some dudes in return dave dombrowski i think there was a part of him that was a little apprehensive about parting with such talent but the way he put it to me we're trading guys who might be all-stars we know we are getting an all-star in return at the time it was a team already built to win it made plenty of sense so definitely fascinating and tigers kind of swooped in at the last minute one of the wildest trades i think in in recent memory to look back on and yeah funny to compare the dodgers were offering up clinton kershaw and matt kemp and a couple of other guys and the marlins were like uh no we really want cameron maven well like maven and miller obviously ended up having perfectly fine careers oh, yeah. it just wasn't with, with they the were Marlins, yeah, 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 and uh, it's, it's funny. I was I was just on Cabrera's baseball reference, and I was like, I wonder who his like number one comp was at twenty four. Uh, it's uh, Henry Aaron. So uh, <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what what would even be the equivalent of that deal today? Like, would it be trading Soto? Like almost. Like Soto with more left on his contract. It's like, yeah, Soto, like a healthier Tatis. Like that's how good Miguel Cabrera was. It was just bananas. And you understood that it was coming. The Marlins were always of the mind, like it's better to to sell a year too early than a year too late so we can get the we can get uh, Miller, we can get Mabin, right? But at the same time, even back then, it was bonkers. And you would still get, like, I wrote about this in, in 2012. And here's a quote that I got from MLB Trade Rumors. Quote, for Miguel Cabrera, the Marlins asked for Astrobal Cabrera, Adam Miller, and then some. Obviously, the tribe said no thanks. And, like, <laughs> it's just hard to believe that he was ever on the market. And I think that the Tigers getting him and then enjoying, like, you know, they just enjoying the renaissance that they had, the, being the pennant-winning team after, after all that. Like, it's just kind of magical that he existed in the first place. It is stunning sometimes to to look back at these things with the benefit of hindsight. You know, it's like I love the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, it makes us all seem like we're like God, these idiots, <laughs> like these these morons, like poor Larry Beinfest. You know, Larry Beinfest is just like using his podcast app and to be like, oh, I wonder what's going on on the Athletic Baseball Show today. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we're going to move on. We're going to move to a topic that is near and dear to Andy's heart. Um, and this is the idea of putting your top tippy top prospects on the roster on opening day or else you are an evil, bad owner trying to save money. You can explain this better than I can. So so have at it, Andy. What are what's our what's your beef? OK, I'm just going to read you some 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 OPSs. OK, <laughs> 524, yes. 488. You said slugging percentages, right? OPS, 492. <laughs> that was uh, Julio Rodriguez, C.J. Abrams, and Bobby Witt Jr. They are not playing particularly well. That's not their fault. They're very young. They're very young. They haven't played a ton in the minors. Maybe it's not always service time manipulation. Maybe not every time. I mean, in the case of Jerry Kelnick, when the team president comes out and says, we are manipulating his service time. It's one of these things that, like, I feel like the bad faith actors in the sport, the people who blatantly manipulate service time, and all teams do it to some extent. You know, the Dodgers found a way to steal a year from Walker Bueller. You know, the the Rays kept down Wander Franco to a certain extent. They did give him $182 million subsequently. But, like, it's sort of like the bad actors in the sport have made it so that, like, there's like a wrong thing. And so when the Pirates send O'Neill Cruz to AAA, right, to the, as I described it as the Chris Bryant School of Defensive Improvement, you know, like it's it's a terrible thing. But like, I don't know, maybe maybe they think O'Neill Cruz would benefit from a month in the minors. And then and it would also maybe help the Pirates a little bit in terms of, you know, getting some more team control. But I just, it's interesting to me that, it's presented as a wonderful thing that teams aren't, you know, that all these kids are coming up and then they're facing big league pitching in April and getting their heads kicked in. And and there's kind of like no further coverage of it. It's just like, yeah, now big deal. Anyway, the rookies are here. Let the kids play. Uh, they can't hit because they've never played above double A. Let me uh, give you one more OPS. Okay. A thousand. That is O'Neill Cruz right now for the Pirates. It's in nine nine plate appearances, but I mean, hey, those nine plate appearances have been pretty good. He was actually getting his head kicked in in AAA, uh, so he had a six twenty eight OPS in AAA, hitting two hundred four, one homer, like not doing a whole lot. And so for the Pirates to bring him up seems like a pretty bad faith call up. Like it's not like he he earned his way back to the or to the majors, but at the same time, I I don't know. Like I go back and forth because I think that there is utility in having a guy on the opening day roster, you've announced like, look, we're the Royals and we are not necessarily thinking that we're going to win the World Series this year, but we have no business keeping Bobby Wood Jr. in the minor leagues. And here you go, fans. Here is your gift for being Royals fans. I do think that there is some utility in that. There is. Well, I guess what I'm saying, is, it's not even that I think like the Witt decision was wrong or the Rodriguez decision was wrong. Like Those guys played incredible all spring. And in the Abrams case, it's because Tatis was injured. I think it's more just like moving forward. Let's keep this in mind. If down the road, a team decides to, uh, you know, manipulate someone's service time by giving them, you know, some extra seasoning in the minors. And, it, and it's worthwhile to talk to Cody about this, right? Because Spencer Torkelson, like, it seems to be having a very interesting experience. And in that like, you look at the the raw OPS and it seems fairly productive, but the slash is probably uh, well below what he expects. And I'm curious, you know, in his first month in the big leagues, after only playing like, you know, 40 games above double a, how you feel like he's acquitted himself. I think 
Torkelson's first two series were not very good. He punched out, I think, you know, nine times or something, struck out looking on like four different pitches that were way off the plate. The umps were kind of hosing him. Uh, so it was, it, you know, so some of the fans start freaking out, like, is this guy a bust? And then suddenly, over the last two weeks, he's been one of the most productive hitters on a team that, granted, is not really producing much at all. But he's been bumped up to fifth in the order. Like, he leads the team with all of three home runs. The way I looked at it with Torkelson and with with Riley Green before he was injured in spring training is like, do you have anyone better? Do you have anyone who you actually believe will produce more for the first month of the season? Especially a team like the Tigers, where they're kind of they're better. How good are they really? They think maybe they can compete for the postseason, but realistically, that's best case scenario, and it's probably going to be a tight race. Like those one or two games in April could matter. So, do you have someone better? Two years ago, Casey Mize was coming up, 2020 pandemic season, and they didn't put him on the opening day roster right away. And everyone was like, What are you doing? He's your best pitcher. He was great in spring training, he was great in the whatever we called it, the workouts. And Alavila, the GM, was like, uh, well, he needs to work. He has a lot of pitches. He needs to work on all his pitches. I was like, all right, sure. Mize comes up later, you know, after the cutoff date passes and kind of gets rocked his first three starts, finishes the year with like a five-something ERA. I was like, well, was that was that really worth, you know? That luckily, they didn't they didn't lose a full-time in Mize's service time. Had they, would it have been worth it? Throw this guy out here in a uh, pandemic season when he could be worth more five years down the line. I think if I had the GM of a team that clearly did not expect to compete under, especially under the old rules before even any draft pick compensation, like why would you not hold a guy down an extra month? Now, if you're the Tigers, maybe even the Mariners, if you think these dudes are your best players and you want to compete, I think it's hard to justify keeping them off the roster. See, I have a, a, a different perspective on that insofar as I think that the pitchers are different than hitters uh, in a very because they have just a limited amount of bullets that you that you, they have in their arm or their shoulder. So, for example, when the Giants where the 2007 Giants were a terrible baseball team and they had no illusions that they were going to contend. They were terrible the year before. They were going to be terrible the year after. They started the season. No one was thinking Tim Linscombe was going to make the opening day roster. He had made eight starts, I think, in the California League the year before. He wasn't close. But then he blew the doors off AAA with five great starts. And the Giants, who are going nowhere, they are thinking, okay, do we risk you know, super two status. Do we risk having to pay him a lot more, a lot sooner? Do we do that? And now that you look back at Lincecum's career, you see that you had a very compressed window of prime Tim Lincecum. And any of that that was spent in Fresno was a disservice. Like we got in, we got to see an extra X of Tim, Tim Lincecum. And I think that there's value in that as well. It's not like it's obviously when you're when you're the Tigers and you're thinking maybe we can do something this year. That's a much different story. But even with the bad teams and pitchers, like when a guy's throwing great, get him because he might blow up. His shoulder might just go into flames tomorrow. Just get that guy on the roster as soon as he's yeah, ready. Yeah, in pitchers, it is kind of a uh, smoke him if you got him situation. And uh, <laughs> but like it's almost like that's that's become too prevalent because the guys are just made into relievers and just you know brought up and and so it's like it's it's almost like the opposite has happened with pitchers pitchers almost always come up probably too soon you know i mean especially the last few years have just been so screwed up with all the injuries and everything like there's no 
you know, a lot of guys have probably the path toward player development has just gotten really, you know, sort of ratcheted up, you know, because of everything that's gone awry in society in general. So what is your rule of thumb when you guys are looking at uh, this prospect is the hottest prospect in the land and the opening day roster crunch is coming? Like, what are you guys looking for that makes you say this is a no doubt slam dunk? Is it like a great spring training? Is it what that player did in the upper minors last year, the last couple of years? How do you do? Because CJ Abrams, for all of his athletic talents and prowess, his stats weren't that great you know, the minor leagues, they had some, you could poke holes in them, Bobby Witt, less so. Uh, so what is like, is there a magic formula or is it just sort of like the Supreme Court case where you know it when you see it? Like what's what's your guys' parameters? I think that's exactly what Al Avila said in spring training. Like, what do you need to see from Torkelson and Green? Well, we don't know, but we'll know it what we when we see it is what he said. Now, A.J. Hinch, the manager, kind of had a different take. Definitely wasn't going to ever really be based on spring training stats. It was going to be more the things you would you would hope knowledgeable baseball people can see. Their plate approach, the way they kind of act behind the scenes, pre-pitch preparation, maybe even the way they handle, you know, adversity. Um, I think A.J. felt like he saw that in Green and Torkelson, some of the behind-the-scenes conversations when he wanted them to do something differently, and then they went out and executed it. He was like, okay, these guys can maybe handle the adjustments they're going to have to make at the major league level. And obviously they felt the talent level was there and they were major league ready in terms of their overall ability. In terms of an exact formula, like I think I spelled it out. Are they the best player? And if you're a team that expects to lose 100 games, maybe it's a little different than you have to make more of a value judgment on is it worth putting this guy up or is it worth having him, you know, six, seven years down the road? The way Cody laid it out was pretty, pretty sound. I mean, just like, is there someone better on the roster? But I, I also, I think about the way that like, you know, really good teams have brought up guys and, you know, you try and create a lane where there's, it's, there's not a lot of fanfare, you know, where there's, it's not a big deal. They're just sort of joining a, a group of good players. They're a good player on a group of them. You know, that's like how Corey Seager sort of took off with the Dodgers, how Cody Bellinger did, etc. cetera. Um, but that's also like a rarefied era where you already have a, a lineup with like seven good players in it, which doesn't always happen. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we just, if anything, these past few weeks have demonstrated how much better big league pitching is than double A pitching. Uh, I mean, like the the pitching has never been better. I know you hear it, you know, every day you see it in every game, but like the pitching is sort of ridiculous. Uh, and you know, with the way the baseball is moving and all that sort of stuff. So, I don't know. I think if teams if teams are going to be committed to a financial model where they are not going to pursue long-term extensions at market rate with potential superstars, you know, unlike say the Padres with Tatis. But if a team is basically saying like, we've got six years with this guy, like let's make the best of them. Then they want to try and leverage those as, as best they can. And, you know, like, we can be, you can sort of like complain about it, I guess, and say you want to see, you want to see the the guys play, but it's like, there's no real guarantee they're going to be remotely ready. So do you guys think the new CBA rules and the draft pick compensation will make any difference? I don't think the Tigers really took that much into consideration. I think like maybe it's like a small added bonus, but I don't think it, you know, I mean, O'Neill Cruz is not in the majors. 
and like he's you know and the, and the Royals are like the Royals are more aggressive with prospects than than most teams are they've you know the service time manipulation's never really been an issue there i think with Seattle the combination of like how well Rodriguez played uh, in spring and like the disaster of the Kellenic like optics last year but like yeah i mean i think there's still tons of guys who could probably play who are you know sort of getting some seasoning Adley Rushman comes to mind there is also a factor where when Tatis was, so before Tatis was a rookie, he was, I think, 19 in double A. And that's not necessarily a profile where you're thinking, oh, this guy's coming up right away. And he had a spring and it wasn't necessarily the stats like you're saying. It was the way he comported himself. It's uh, the swings he was taking, the decisions that he was making were the veterans around basically said to the Padres, we will be so pissed if this guy is not on our team. You have built, you know, we, we have built a team that's win now. And if this guy, we can clearly see how good he is. If he is not a part of that man, you've lost a little bit of our respect and the Padres listened. So that's going to be also that rule of thumb. Like if you've got the veterans saying, no, 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 this guy's coming with us, whether you like it or not, that's going to be a pretty, pretty dang good sign. And I don't know if that happened with Witt or Abrams well, you or, should or just, whomever. For a slight counterpoint with the Tatis thing, at the time when he was put on the roster, like that opening weekend in 19, there were executives around the sport who were like, the Padres are idiots for doing this because they're giving <laughs> up a year of control. Like, they just gave up a year for two weeks. That was a thing people thought. And, like, you know, there's lots of things about Tatis that we're very slowly going to get into in terms of, like, uh, you know, whether or not the contract was a good idea, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, you know, it, that, to me, like, I always thought it was perfectly fine to put him on the big league roster, and he was obviously ready from day one. His, his issue was just staying healthy, you know. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. All right, we're going to move on to our third topic. We've done torque talk. Now we do clock talk. And so we're going to do, uh, we're going to talk about pitch clocks because baseball is experimenting with pitch clocks in the minor leagues and it's working. And uh, I know of a Sabre award-winning author who looked at the length of games and why games were so long. That would be me. I wrote about, I watched a, an article or I watched a game from the eighties and I, it was the exact same runs hits for both teams. And I compared it to a modern game. And I was like, what's the difference, right? It's the same runs, the same hits. The game should have flowed exactly the same. And I sat there at the stopwatch. It took me a really, really long time. And the difference was the pitch clock was just time between pitches, farting around between pitches, fidgeting with batting gloves between pitches. And it just, it was so, it wasn't commercials. It wasn't all the other stuff. It wasn't righties and loogies and reliever matchups. It was just screwing around between pitches. And now they're finding out in the minor leagues, that's exactly what it is. So clock talk. Is pitch clocks, uh, like, is it a good thing? Are, they, are you excited about it? Do you really enjoy screwing around between pitches? Does it give you more time to, I don't know, stuff nachos in your mouth? Clock talk starts now. Is there a good argument against it? I will say that there is an idea that one of the reasons fastballs are hotter now is because you, the time that you spend resting and loading, it, it's better for pitchers' health and their fastball velocity. You might see more injuries. That's the argument against it. So I guess throw that in there. Wait, but who's arguing that, that increased velocity is better for the game? Increased velocity has made the game worse. 
like the thing you are saying is what some people will say is what's wrong with the game is that these guys just load up and you know throw a hundred percent every time and so it slows down the game and it puts the ball in play less often so like guys would get injured more i mean they're gonna get injured because they're pitching <laughs> so i am more or less a traditionalist with baseball i think it's a good game I, the rules make sense to me i wouldn't change much about it i think the pitch clock seems like such an obvious solution and improvement. I, I I mean, there's always a downside risk. There's always unintended consequences, but I can't really see them. I don't know. Cody, what comes to mind for you? Well, I should probably start off by saying I don't hate the modern game as much as a lot of people. I think home runs are the most <laughs> exciting play in the sport. I think strikeouts are maybe the second most exciting thing in the sport. I've kind of started to like regress backward though i think a lot of people have like for the overall health of the game if there have to be changes to get more young fans interested to keep people's attention longer i'm starting to come around i think banning or limiting the shift is going to be a good place to start i think that might have a lot of trickle down effects as far as the pitch clock i don't to andy's point i wish i knew a better argument against it like i don't see how it's controversial if it gets me home 20 or 30 minutes faster every night on a daily basis, you know I'm all for that. I think my dog will enjoy that, you know. <laughs> um, I think my girlfriend would enjoy that. Like, you know, I think I think the fans would enjoy it. The people watching at home might actually be able to stay awake throughout an entire game. And it seems like from the early reports in the minors, sometimes players complain about it. I think they're going to get used to it pretty quickly. I think we've seen that with several of these rule changes already. They changed the rule, and everyone, the three batter minimum, we thought was going to be the death of the sport. And you don't really hear anyone <laughs> complaining about it much anymore, you know? So I'm all for the pitch clock. It's funny how, like, a, a lot of, I wrote about this a couple years ago. I wrote about the idea of banning the shift. And so I asked, uh, like, a lot of managers at, like, the virtual winter meetings in December of 2020, like, how they thought, what they thought about it. And a lot of them were sort of like, you know, I really hated all the rule changes, but then they changed all the rules in 2020. And the game was still fine. I'm actually all for it now. Just change it, whatever, change it. I don't care. Like, who cares? The game will be fine. And, and the idea that they make, a pitch clock and then that leads to like a, a, a confrontation with a batter and an ump over the clock running out that's great i mean that's great drama like there was no funnier moment in the 2021 season than max scherzer like offering to take off his pants <laughs> on the mound because joe girardi kept asking to get him checked for sticky stuff like that was great that was great theater like the, let's get more of that I wholeheartedly agree. Like I grew up as, you know, tying a, a t-shirt around my head and like face paint, like no DH, no DH. <laughs> and then the DH comes and like, oh, yeah, yeah. All right. That's fine. That's fine. It's it's fine. fine. I will. Okay. I will. I can't believe we let pitchers hit for more than a hundred years. I am mystified by that. See, it's fun because I love the moments where, like, if you are a National League fan or partisan, like, you have these moments in your head, like, oh, the Rick Camp game or or Santiago Casillas, a uh, couple of plate appearances, and you have these moments. But then you also like DHs are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that's exciting in its own way. So. It's fine. I will carve out an exception for I am still not used to the runner in extra innings, and I still hate the absolute hell out of it. Every time it shows up, I am just mad. 
That's a bad. Thing. I love it. Actually, it's a it's it. a great rule. It's a great. I just rule. absolutely. Can't. You're talking about the ghost. Yeah, runner, the Manfred right? man. Like it's it's it's, it's a real Manfred runner. Man. It's a real runner. Whatever the zombie runner. It's it's great. It's like one. It's like one of the best rules I've oh ever implemented. Gosh. It's just what I don't like about it is that another team can win by not doing anything right, and the other team not doing anything wrong in any other capacity. What are you talking about? You can have a runner at second and someone hits the ball just weakly enough. And then all of a sudden they pop it just weakly enough. They could do nothing right. Pitch well, better. Pitch better. Like you got the weak contact. You had, you had them pound it into the ground. Play better yeah, defense. No, no, no. I'm talking you can just hit so poorly and you get that runner in without in the ninth inning, you have to at least get the runner on or the other team has to screw up. They have to walk someone. They have to make an air. They have to kick the ball. They have to screw up or you have to do at least one thing good with the Manfred man. You don't have to do anything good and you can still get that run across. I think a possible solution, 10th inning, you start a runner on first base. If no one wins the game, 11th inning, put the guy on second. Oh, I don't like that. No, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I'm trying to think of what the, what it was that you get to choose whether you're in the field or if you're pitching or you're hitting. And if you are pitching, you say, okay, we're going to pitch. And then you shut them down, you win. They get a run, then they win. Or you say, we're going to hit. And if you score a run, you win, that sort of thing. So I think that makes a little bit of sense. It's like the OT rules. Yeah, I don't like that. That's the NFL OT rules. I'll tell you one thing I absolutely hate would be the idea of having a home run derby decide yeah. a game. That be a sucks. Aren't you a little curious? No, have you? You've been to home run derbies. They're You're not awful. derby curious? The home run derby The home run derby sucks until Pete Alonso gets in there every year. Every year, it's garbage. And then Pete Alonso gets in there, and you're like, this man was built for Oh, this. I thought about that with Stanton. Everyone Joe Color Stanton was built for Judge. You've got some guys. But no, Stanton wasn't very good in his derby, in, in, in the Miami He one. wasn't? You don't even yeah. remember. That's how, I, I'm like, not a derby historian. <laughs> what lasts way too long is the home run derby. It takes forever. This is true. This is true. I will say that when you go to, like, for example, if you're going to a basketball game and you've circled that Steph Curry's coming to town, you go to a game, you buy tickets, and unless they're resting him or something, you're going to see at least one Steph Curry moment, right? If Giancarlo Stanton is coming to town or Pete Alonso is coming to town, you circle that calendar, he might go one for nine with a single on that series. Like, Baseball just doesn't offer those moments guaranteed. Like they, it, you are never guaranteed when you're at the park to see the best player do the best player kind of things. Whereas like a home run derby, there'd be a little bit more of, I don't know if anticipation is the right word, but you would get to see more of what makes a player great. That doesn't mean I want it, but I think there would be something cool about that. Yeah, I mean, baseball is crazy. Like if you think about it, like if you fail seven times out of 10, you go to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Like that, I mean, like, think about that. That's, <laughs> dude, that's nuts, actually. Like, man, you fail 70% of the time. You, like, you're one of the best to ever do it. I mean, it's just a crazy Actually, if you game. fail 70% of the time, your on-base percentage is 300, idiot. You're not getting close oh, to the Hall of Fame. You are Juan Gonzalez <laughs> in his bad year. No, I. <laughs> now we're, br- we're bringing back the Cabrera. By the way, I just want to reiterate a couple times over the past like week or so, I've looked at Miguel Cabrera's baseball reference page, and then I've considered like 
terrifyingly like searching my name on Twitter and Miguel Cabrera because I'm sure like in 2012 I'm just like everyone who thinks Miguel Cabrera is good is a moron (laughs) and I'm looking and it's like you know just black ink (laughs) like you know 190 OPS plus like leading the league and everything and and you have just morons like me being like do you guys even watch baseball like you guys like do you even understand I mean from like 2009 to 2015 he hit worse than three 24 once like he's hitting 344 330 348 338 that's like five years where he's just freaking like tony gwynn with 40 home run power and yeah it was so easy i mean i like how i brought it back full circle because i still don't think we impressed that enough where it was like he's so good he's so good so good <laughs> at everything i think especially after covering miguel and i've covered you know post late career bad miguel but you know, I'm not from Detroit originally, and obviously I knew Miguel really well. I remember the 2003 World Series. But until you click around on that baseball reference page, I think the average fan, even the well-informed fans, don't realize like how good he was. I think, I don't know if that was a marketing problem or because he plays in the Midwest or what, but dude was insane for a number of years. And he's famous, but I feel like he should be more famous than, than he actually is. Giants fans, like he has a special place in Giants lore because he was the one who ended the 2012 World Series caught looking on a Sergio Romo heater down the middle. So like even that, when you start thinking about him as, as from a Giants perspective, it's like, oh yeah, haha. Remember when he was the all-star who, blah, blah, blah. it's like, man, it does him a disservice. I think if there's one thing anyone takes away from this podcast, it's that it's the scorching hot take that Miguel Cabrera, pretty good. Sorry, I'm just I'm just looking. Oh my god, I'm just looking through <laughs> these tweets. God, these are so bad. Oh man. Oh no. Yes, yes. Give me like. Do you have? Come on, give us like a top. Imagine five. if Miguel Cabrera could run and play tremendous defense in the outfield. <laughs> god, that sucks. Oh my god, dude, how bad does that suck? Actually, oh okay. I think wow. I I think I was very clear at the time that Cabrera was good. I just did a quick scroll and that was the only one that was like super cringe, the the one that I read out loud, but for the most part I did convey Miguel Cabrera is a really good player. So man, a bullet dodged, I guess. I feel a little bit better about myself. Here's uh, April 5th, 2012. Miguel Cabrera's UZR for 2012 is going to be Brooks Robinson getting drunk and throwing beer bottles at his computer. Five retweets, three likes, and honestly, it, d- it deserved you? fewer than that. That's what, me. That's what, me. I what just are you went, trying to say? <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, any tweet that I sent before, like, 2017 God. just sucks. Like, I wasn't... <laughs> Which makes me think, it, like, I suck now. Like, it's it's very, but I'll, I'll just, like, suck less. You know what I mean? Like, I'll, yeah, so I don't know, man. Cody, what were you doing in 2012? 2012? Uh, graduating oh high school. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> it was a different time. I know that sounds crazy to say about tw- 10 years ago. But, like, it just, somehow, like, the tweets seemed seemed better. And yet, if you go back and read them, they are worse than the current ecosystem of baseball coverage by far by far yeah yeah this is a i i don't think i'm going to do this again where i uh search my name in a player from like 10 years ago because this is awful like that one was 
probably one of the better ones and it was absolutely incomprehensible. So <sighs> thanks for that, Andy. We're all terrible here. All right. This has been episode four of the round table. Uh, I would like to thank Cody Stavenhagen for coming on and talking uh, torque talk, clock talk and Miggy talk and uh, giving his perspective. Andy, I will talk Hold to on. you. I next. just, I just Whoa, found wait. another one. I no. just found another one. Okay. Oh God. November 15th, <laughs> 2012. I just read something weird. Apparently trout had an identical WRC plus to Cabrera and a higher OPS plus. I thought Cabrera was a better hitter. Oh, oh did you drop a makes you think with oh, like, you know, you don't spell out the word you. It's just the letter makes you think. It hurts so bad. It hurts so uh, bad. This was a great Dude, exercise. I'm glad we did the this. The crazy thing is my career advanced. Yeah, I just kept going, I'm a success I story. Myself, I was yeah. doing this and they were like, yeah, we got to give this guy more money and more responsibility. Like, oh my God. Oh. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pulling the ladder up. Like, sorry. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. Anyone's shitty, I get to God. criticize, but uh, not we gotta me. we got to find a way to do this every week. Man. This is somehow better than my high school football. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so bad, dude. Uh, old Tweets with Andy and Grant. All right. This has been episode four of Old Tweets with Andy and Grant with special guest Cody. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week and uh, we'll have some worse tweets. I don't know. I, I think we could do it. All right. Thanks for listening.